MSW Media. We'd like to thank our new sponsor, Microdose, for supporting the Daily Beans. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code DAILYBEANS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, November 6, 2023. Today, the disgraced former President Donald Trump takes the stand in the New York Attorney General's $250 million civil fraud trial. Secretary Blinken makes a surprise trip to the West Bank as the Biden administration pushes Netanyahu for a humanitarian pause at Gaza. Trump's State Department appointee, Federico Klein, is sentenced to 70 months in prison. Mark Meadows is being sued by his publisher for lying in his book. White voters in Virginia are facing fewer challenges this election than black voters. Georgia's DA oversight law faces a new legal challenge. And Jamie Raskin fires off a letter to George Santos. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Happy Monday. I know, I know I said Dana would be here, but she got stuck as one is wont to do when you go to LAX. So I'm going to be flying solo today. She'll be back in your ears tomorrow. We are one year out from the 2024 elections. Time to buckle down and get to work. Um, There's a new episode of Jack out right now. came out Sunday. It's called Stay the Whole Enchilada. That's me and Andy McCabe. He's dialing in from Bangkok, by the way. And we will have our special guest, SEPA expert, former deputy chief of staff to the CIA general counsel, Brian Greer. So don't forget to check out that episode. We do have a couple of quick hits today before the hot notes. First up, Federico Klein, a former Donald Trump political appointee at the State Department who tried to storm the Capitol and assaulted law enforcement officers on January 6th, was sentenced to 70 months in prison on Friday. The DOJ was asking for 120 months, but Trump appointee Trevor McFadden came in well under the sentencing guidelines per use. McFadden said that Klein's conduct was shocking and egregious and suggested his sentence would have been higher had Klein not already been on home detention for two years. And the publisher of Mark Meadows's book is suing the former White House chief of staff for lying in his book about the 2020 election. The suit comes after ABC News reported that Meadows received limited use immunity to testify before a grand jury convened to hear evidence from special counsel Jack Smith, reportedly contradicting statements he made in his book. The company is asking for the $350,000 it paid Meadows as a book advance, uh, $600,000 in out-of-pocket damages, and at least a million dollars each for reputational damage suffered by the company and loss of expected profits for the book. The sales, which have dropped off considerably when everybody found out that he took um, a limited use immunity. Uh, also, Today, Donald Trump has taken the stand in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud trial. It's going to be interesting. He's going to get pinned down on a lot of things. Uh, We will see whether he uh, lies on the stand, obfuscates, says he doesn't recall. Um, Maybe he'll violate the gag order that was just expanded. Maybe his lawyers will. Who knows? But we will report on that tomorrow and, of course, in detail on this Wednesday's episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45. All right. We have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up from CNN, President Joe Biden and his top advisors are warning Israel 
with growing force that it will become increasingly difficult for it to pursue its military goals in Gaza as global outcry intensifies about the scale of humanitarian suffering there. Biden, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary Blinken, who departed Thursday for Israel, by the way, with a message on protecting civilian lives, have all explicitly pressed the case in recent private conversations with the Israelis, telling them that eroding support will have dire strategic consequences for Israel Defense Forces operations against Hamas. Behind the scenes, American officials also believe there is limited time for Israel to try to accomplish its stated objective of taking out Hamas in its current operation before uproar over the humanitarian suffering and civilian casualties and calls for a ceasefire reaches a tipping point. In fact, there is recognition within the administration that the moment may arrive quickly if it's not already here. Some of the president's close advisors believe that there are only weeks, not months, until rebuffing the pressure on U.S. government to publicly call for a ceasefire becomes untenable. That's according to sources speaking to CNN. There have been no signs that Israel's offensive is slowing. In fact, just today on Sunday, the IDF says they are now getting ready for their real offensive. Makes me question what they've been doing the past couple of weeks. The Israeli military said Thursday it's surrounding Gaza City and deepening its operations there. CNN witnessed the skies of northern Gaza illuminated by flares and explosions as the bombardment intensified late Thursday night. Particularly jarring to Biden and his national security team, according to two sources familiar, were Israeli airstrikes this week that targeted a refugee camp in northern Gaza, resulting in grim scenes of widespread destruction and death. The president, quote, didn't like this at all, according to one of the sources. Quote, the problem for Israel is that the criticism is getting louder, not just among their detractors, but from their best friends. That's one senior administration official speaking with CNN. Israel Defense Forces spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan, I think it's Conricus, claimed that the strike was targeting a Hamas commander hiding in an underground bunker and that when the complex imploded, it possibly collapsed nearby buildings. Already, protests have blocked streets in Western capitals and even interrupted private fundraisers Biden was attending on Wednesday in Minnesota. Quote, as a rabbi, I need you to call for a ceasefire right now. That's what an audience member shouted. Biden responded by making an explicit call for a break in the fighting. I think we need a pause, he said, adding later when pressed by the protester, a pause means give time to get the prisoners out. The president has not established any red lines for Israel, officials insist. And up until this point, the White House has taken great pains to avoid calling for a ceasefire, arguing that doing so would only help Hamas by giving the terrorist organization time to regroup and plot future operations. Now, I spoke to a friend who works at the State Department, and there's a difference between a humanitarian pause and a ceasefire. A ceasefire insinuates that the fighting is paused or at an end while an armistice or a diplomatic solution is being negotiated. Now, Biden is not the prime minister of Israel. He cannot make that call for a sovereign, independent nation. Uh, all the administration can do is pressure, apply pressure. But they can call for these humanitarian pauses for aid. But again, as the sources spoke to CNN telling them the call for a ceasefire may be sooner rather than later from the United States. Those humanitarian pauses, which U.S. officials say are entirely different from ceasefires and localized in scope and limited in duration, are one of several specific issues top American officials have pressed Israel on in recent days as outcry mounts over the suffering of Palestinian civilians. Others include maintaining phone and Internet connectivity on the Strip, allowing fuel and water into Gaza, curbing escalating violence on the West Bank. That's according to people familiar. The Israel military says there are fuel supplies in Gaza being held by Hamas, which are not being distributed for humanitarian purposes. Netanyahu explicitly rejected some of those calls on Friday, 
as Blinken visited Israel and met with the Israeli war cabinet. The prime minister specifically said his government opposed any temporary ceasefire in Gaza unless Hamas freed all of the hostages that it holds. Quote, I made clear that we're going with full steam ahead and that Israel refuses any temporary ceasefire that does not involve the release of the kidnapped Israelis. That's what Netanyahu said in the televised remarks. He went on to say Israel is not allowing fuel into Gaza and objects to funds being transferred into the Strip. Now, over the course of their 10 phone calls, Biden pressed Netanyahu on specific points and action items, including significantly increasing the number of aid trucks allowed into Gaza, facilitating the departure of foreign nationals from Gaza and curbing extremist settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Now, departing Thursday for a visit to Israel, Blinken said he intended to discuss, quote, concrete steps that can and should be taken to minimize harm to men, women and children in Gaza. Blinken brought his diplomatic push on the Israel-Hamas war to the occupied West Bank on Sunday, meeting with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the Biden administration's latest efforts to ease civilian suffering in the Gaza Strip and to start to sketch out a post-conflict scenario for the territory, something it appears Netanyahu is just not interested in doing at this time. The meeting with Abbas, uh, whose Ramallah-based Palestinian authority has not been a factor in Gaza since Hamas took it over by force in 2007, that came at the start of Blinken's third day of his latest Mideast mission, his second since the surprise Hamas attack against Israel on October 7th. Blinken visited Israel and met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Friday before meeting in Jordan with Arab ministers on Saturday. At each step, Blinken has offered firm U.S. support for Israel's right to defend itself, but also stressed that it must adhere to the laws of war, protect civilians, and increase humanitarian aid supplies to Gaza. To do that, as well as to ease the flow of foreigners fleeing Gaza, he's made the case that Israel should implement rolling humanitarian pauses to its airstrikes and ground operations. Again, something that Netanyahu has thus far flatly rejected. All right, let's switch gears back to the U.S. elections. This is from Bluestein at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Georgia's top court cast a Republican-backed law into uncertainty on Friday when it raised legal questions about a new oversight commission with the powers to sanction or oust wayward prosecutors. This is that law that where they put a commission together and see if they can get rid of Fonnie Willis. The Georgia Supreme Court asked the state's attorney to answer key constitutional questions. First of all, whether the court has the legal authority to approve rules setting up the commission. That's the big one. That's required by the state law. Quote, before taking action on the standards and rules, the court must first assure itself that it has the power to do so. The court is limited to exercising only the judicial power that the Georgia Constitution vests in it. Unquote. The court's narrow question did not seek to resolve the broader issue of whether state lawmakers overstepped their authority by establishing the panel. As a bipartisan group of district attorneys argued in a separate legal challenge that's pending, by the way, in Fulton County Superior Court. But the court's order could temporarily halt the commission from taking action on complaints against prosecutors, at least until lawmakers revisit the legislation and potentially remove the Georgia Supreme Court from the process. The future of the law is being closely watched in Georgia and beyond, partly because allies of Donald Trump want the commission to sanction Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis for seeking election interference charges against the former president and 18 other co-defendants. We're now down to 14 other co-defendants. The law is among a spate of Republican-led efforts nationwide to exert more control over liberal prosecutors they accuse of defying their duties because they refuse to enforce low-level drug offenses, anti-abortion restrictions, and tough-on-crime crackdowns. But it's also attracted scrutiny because supporters and critics both said it could be deployed against prosecutors investigating Donald Trump. That's what happened last month when Georgia Senate GOP leaders 
filed a formal complaint to the commission seeking to sanction Fonnie Willis, even though Kemp and House Speaker John Byrne said there's no evidence that the Fulton prosecutor violated state law. The complaint does not specifically mention Trump, but it contends that Willis, quote, improperly cherry picked cases to further her personal political agenda. It asked the commission to initiate an investigation and take appropriate measures to sanction her. Now, even if the rules are adopted, it's unlikely, this is according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's unlikely a complaint against Willis would be successful. The commission proposed that any conduct that occurs before the state Supreme Court approves the regulations will not be subject to any discipline. And Willis brought the charges in August, and the court still hasn't approved the standards. Next up from Sam Levine at The Guardian. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Virginia Democrats are concerned that non-white voters in the state are getting their mail-in ballots flagged for possible rejection at much higher rates than their white counterparts ahead of a closely watched election day this Tuesday. Virginia, like all states, requires voters to fill out certain information on the envelope in which they return their ballot. In Virginia, that includes their name, address, birth year, and last four digits of their social security number. If any of that information is missing, voters have until 13 November to provide it. If they don't provide it by the deadline, that ballot is rejected. An internal analysis by the Democratic Party of Virginia, shared with The Guardian, found election officials have flagged 6,216 mail-in ballots for possible rejection as of Friday. That's 2.89% of the total mail-in ballots cast. Voters have fixed issues with more than half those ballots, the party said, so there's about 2,700 ballots that could be rejected. And, as it turns out, black voters were much more likely than white voters to have their ballots flagged for potential rejection. Statewide, 4.82% of ballots submitted by black voters have been flagged for rejection as of Friday, compared with 2.79% for white voters. That's what the party's analysis has shown. Quote, this is unacceptable and raises the stakes for election officials to get this right. Every Virginian has a constitutional right to vote and have their ballot counted. That means taking the ballot cure process seriously. That's Aaron Mukherjee, who's the leading state party's voters protection efforts person. He said that in a statement. The Virginia Department of Elections didn't return requests for comment to The Guardian. Even if the majority of voters are able to cure their ballots, it's still alarming to see racial disparities in the ballots being flagged. This is just an additional burden, especially for voters of color who are now having to go through a multi-stage process in order to have their vote counted with no discernible benefit to the security of elections. That's what he said in an interview. In some localities, the disparity was clear. According to the Democratic Party's analysis, in Richmond, the state capital, more than 11 percent of ballots returned by black voters were flagged for rejection, compared with about 5.5 percent. That's half for white voters in Henrico County. More than six and a half percent of ballots were returned by black voters that were flagged for rejection, compared with three percent for white voters. That's less than half. And even after significant numbers of voters have cured their ballots in both counties, the potential rejection rate for black voters remained more than twice as high as their white counterparts. Under state law, local election officials are required to contact voters who turned in the mail-in ballots by Friday and inform them they need to cure their ballot. Uh, McCurgy said the party was concerned because it was hearing from voters who had not yet received that notice from local election offices. While the number of ballots rejected is usually a tiny fraction of the total votes cast, The uncounted votes make a difference in state legislative races, which can be decided by razor-thin margins. You'll remember in 2018, a House of Delegates race resulted in a tie and was determined by drawing from a hat. The Republican candidate won the contest, giving the party control of the House of Delegates. Drawing from a hat gave the Republicans control of that. House of Delegates. Now, the cure period past Election Day, something many states allow, 
also could delay final election results in close races as candidates and parties race to track those down whose ballots have been flagged to try to get them to cure their ballots. Virginia recently changed its rules around mail-in voting, making it significantly easier to vote that way. And until this year, Virginia voters had to get a witness to sign their mail-in ballot. That requirement was eliminated on 1st of July and replaced with a requirement that voters provide their year of birth and last four digits of their social. At least one local registrar sent out incorrect and outdated voting instructions. It's not clear what's causing the disparity. McCurgy says about 40% of the rejections it had studied were because of issues with providing the last four digits of a social or a birth year. Virginia's elections next week will determine which party controls the state legislature and could give Governor Glenn Youngkin and state Republicans power to advance new restrictions on abortion, among other GOP quote-unquote priorities. And this past weekend, indicted Republican George Santos penned a thank-you letter to all the Democrats who voted against his expulsion from the House of Representatives. As we discussed last week, Jamie Raskin was one of those Democrats who voted to keep him in the chamber. George Santos wrote, I'm writing to express my gratitude to you for standing up for the principles, P-A-L-S, principles, of due process and the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Never in the history of this body has an expulsion been carried out before a member has stood before a jury of their peers and been convicted of the alleged crimes they have been accused, uh, of which they've been accused, it should say. I want to sincerely emphasize that I know your vote was not done for me, but for the sanctity of the institution and the possibility of setting a very dangerous precedent. For that, I thank you. Sincerely, George Santos. Well, Jamie Raskin took a blue pen to this letter. And after making several grammatical and spelling error corrections, uh, Raskin wrote him a note on the letter. Dear Congressman Santos, I appreciate your note and only wish someone had proofread it first. Meantime, you should apologize to the people of New York for all your lies and deceit. I know you must have thought you could get away with it all in the party of Trump, but the truth is resilient. P.S. It's not shameful to resign. Signed, Jamie Raskin. Uh, I put that letter up on my Twitter feed if you want to see it. It's a thing of beauty. It's something to behold. Go check it out if you get a chance. All right, everybody, uh, we'll be right back with the good news, but we have to take a quick break. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Myself and lots of other folks have recently started using microdose gummies. Using small, precisely measured substances, they help pave the way towards being in a better state of mind. Plus, they make it easier to get into, you know, the zone. That sensation of sharpened focus where your mind and body are at peace. And you even have more energy. Microdosing makes it easier to get there and it helps you stay there a lot longer. Microdose sent me gummies so I could learn more about getting in the zone. You can try it, too. Go to microdose.com and use code DAILYBEANS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Ever since I've started taking microdose gummies, it's like someone turned down the volume on my stress. No more feeling frazzled. No more dark thoughts racing through my head. Um, Long work calls are a breeze. My shoulders don't bunch up. I don't have to unclench my jaw. I've also been in a better mood, feeling the kind of peace and satisfaction you feel after finishing a good book. Plus, it's easier to fall asleep than ever before. Microdose gummies strike the perfect balance for relaxation without the excess. I prefer a gentler approach. A half gummy eases me into a peaceful evening vibe away from the day's relentless pace. It helps me shift gears from busy and stressed to rested and relaxed. I can unwind from the day without any sluggish after effects. And that is one of the reasons I love microdosing so much. I recommend people try these gummies today. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code DAILYBEANS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com, code DAILYBEANS. 
microdose.com code dailybeans for 30% off. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, or if you want to send a what the mutt or a what the hell is in that shell or what the shell, uh, as uh, David so astutely pointed out on the on the Daily Beans patron happy hour this past Friday, I think it was David, uh, or, you know, a shout out to yourself, or I can guess your horse breed or cow breed. I'm not going to be good at the cow breeds, but whatever you want to send in to us, you can do so by going to dailybeanspod.com. And clicking on contact, I have a little piece of good news today. We're recording, a, I'm recording a little bit early in the day today because I get to go to my friend's uh, baby shower today. Uh, this miracle baby um, was just born months and months premature and um, everything is looking amazing. And so we're having the shower today and I'm, I'm really excited to, to be a part of that. All right. First up from Jen, pronouns she and her. Hello, intelligent, witty and beautiful beans ladies. I thought of writing in over the past two months, but it was your Wednesday episode with Dallas McLaughlin that finally prompted me to do so. Thank you, Jen. We've got so much great feedback from that Dallas interview. I live in the red half of Washington state, Jen says. Our August primary election also contained a special recall measure for three school board members. I don't have children, so until the past few years, I never really thought about school boards or school levies and had opted not to vote on those issues. But I now realize it impacts the entire community and the country. So I need to be informed and vote on school shit, too. I had, of course, seen the signs around town, but wasn't sure what these folks had done to deserve a recall. I figured they were more moderate folks who'd drawn the ire of the far right. But after researching it, I discovered that they are three far right members who had violated both state law and district rules. It stemmed from mask mandates by Governor Inslee and enforced by the Washington State Superintendent of Public Instruction. These three members of the school board wanted to ignore the law and not require masks in school. They called a special session in February of 2022 and held a vote on the matter against district policy because there was no prior notice of the matter or the vote. And since there are only five members of the board, they won, which violated the state policy, regardless of their vote. Given how conservative this area is and how little the majority of the public seems to care about infecting everyone with SARS-CoV-2, um, that's... I'm shocked, but she's the SARS-CoV-2. I'm shocked, but pleased to say that the recall of all three was successful. It's now clear that at least two of the three are also proponents of Christian nationalism, and we're aiming to push that agenda on our public schools, so good riddance. One of the ousted members is on the ballot to regain her seat in November, though. I appreciate the interviews you've had over the past week or so, as it exposes us listeners to a broader coalition of folks to follow. Thank you, Jen. I will uh, send your note to Dallas, too. Next up from Melissa W., she and her, I want to shout out one of the Leguminati. It was one of the bi-monthly patron meetups, and I was having a particularly difficult day. I can't remember what happened in particular, but all I remember is I hadn't eaten a lot that Friday. And during the meetup, that happened after AG had finished the formal portion. Dad at Diva was able to get it out of me that I hadn't eaten a lot, and I was very likely crashing due to the lack of food in my system. She graciously asked me what I wanted to have and ordered me some food. I didn't even have enough energy to make anything to eat. It's been several months since this happened, but I want to thank her for doing this. Attached is a photo of the sun going down while having dinner at a golf course this past September in uh, British Columbia. That's a, wow, that's a beautiful photo, Melissa. And yep, 
We take care of each other. So thanks to Data Diva for that. Great shout out. Thanks, Melissa. Next up from Judy M, pronouns she and they. Hey, Beans Queens, listeners since Kitchen Table Days here, working as a letter carrier in Santa Ana. I would have my phone in my shirt pocket, listening while I walked my route. No earbuds allowed, so everyone is in earshot. (laughs) They could hear. Had a few close calls with the F-bombs, quickly covering my left breast to muffle the sound. Often wondered what people thought I was doing, LOL. Finally did embark DNA to see what my girl is, besides 100% awesome. Meet Miss Bailey, a.k.a. Real Bad B. I rescued her in January of 2010. The vet said she was about one or two years old, making her 14 or 15 now and still going strong. She was a huge hit at LB Pride this year with her pop of pink. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to a rescue in the San Diego area. Uh, Frosted Faces Foundation. Oh, what a great name. They're on uh, Instagram as Frosted Faces. They do a great job of rescuing older puppers from shelters all over SoCal, as well as final wishes programs for the parents, parents, P-A-W-R-E-N-T-S, to have a peace of mind that their fur baby will be taken care of in the event that they pass away. They also offer free medical for the rest of the pet's life when you rescue one of their seniors. And if you're unable to rescue, they're always in need of fans for their seniors. Thank you for keeping us informed of all things newsworthy and doing it in an entertaining way. Okay, let's see. This little baby, the pop of pink on the freak flag is beautiful, by the way, the tail. Oh, goodness. Um, Maybe Corgi? Chihuahua? Um, Adorable? 100% awesome, you're correct. Um, The pink probably part unicorn, I'm going to guess. Oh my God, so cute. Palm? Maybe a little palm in there or something? Let's see. Breed results below. Eskimo, Pekingese, Dachshund, Poodle, and Supermutt. Okay, I got none. None. Zero. I got zero (laughs) percent. Congratulations, me. But I got what I did get right was that there's a little bit of unicorn in there and that the puppers is 100% awesome. Thank you, Judy. Thank you so much for that submission. Next up, from Anonymous, pronouns she and her. What the heck, wine? Ooh, hi, this is my horse, Duke. I picked him up a few years ago while he was waiting in a, a sale barn for a ride with a kill buyer. Sadly, many horses are shipped out of our country for slaughter. Mm. I'm not sure what breed. They said Tennessee Walker, but he is not. They also said he was six, but he's actually two. We're submitting a DNA test soon. He's absolutely the sweetest soul. What do you think? He has feathers on his feet, and his forelock and mane are very fluffy. I'm thinking Frisian cross. Keep up the good work. I listen to you guys every morning while I scoop poop. I would need to know how many hands this horse is to to make a fully educated guess. I I maybe maybe Frisian cross, maybe Morgan, maybe thoroughbred. Absolutely beautiful though. What a sweet baby. Congrats. Oh, so, so beautiful. Let us know. Let us know. Next up from Eric, pronouns he and him. Hello, Leguminati. Second time caller. You guys are by far my favorite podcast. I start every day with your lovely voices, dropping some knowledge. I'm sorry, Eric, that Dana's not here today. Thank you again for your sanity, humor, insights, and interviews. John Fugelsang is a great addition to the show. I also listen to Jack and Clean Up and enjoy those shows as well. Pete is hilarious when he gets riled up. <laughs> Driveway underwear standards. <laughs> he is. He's so funny, Eric. Uh, I, I wish everybody could hear the the bonus episode for cleanup patrons. He's just, he, he gets on a roll. I'm writing to give a shout out to my son, Aaron. He turned 12 on November 5th. Happy birthday. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. 
I couldn't have asked for a better son and friend. He loves music and going to concerts. He's been to 14 so far. 21 Pilots, ACDC, Tom York, Queen. Tom York is the lead singer of uh, uh, Radiohead. Um, and his side project, Uncle, by the way. Fantastic, if you haven't heard it. Queen, Incubus, and Mammoth, to name a few. He loves playing his keyboard and guitar and has asked for a bass guitar for Christmas. I think we'll be starting a band soon. Heck yeah. He's an amazing swimmer, and he qualified for the Junior Olympics this year. Holy shnikes. Plus, he's on the sixth grade honor roll. Most importantly, he's a great kid. He's still sweet and loving and often sits on the couch next to me or his mom with his head on our shoulder while we watch TV. He still occasionally tries to get in our laps, but he's getting too big now that he's five foot three. My favorite part of the day is walking him to school and holding hands. Sometimes we talk about the day ahead. Sometimes we walk in silence. Sometimes we make observations like the time we counted seven daddy long leg spiders randomly walking around the sidewalk for no apparent reason. Is it mating season? Sometimes he wants to drive, but then I remind him of all the observations he'll be missing out on. Aaron, thank you for being my son and for all of the love you've brought into my life these past 12 years. Thank you for making me a dad, the best job ever. Thank you for your generous heart and your beautiful smile. Thank you for your gentle spirit and infectious laugh. Thank you for holding my hand. I will walk you to school until your first day of college. I write him a letter like this every year. There's usually tears from both of us. So this year I thought I'd have AG and DG read it. Thanks. <laughs> Baby picture attached for DG, a photo of our first Disney trip. And one from two weeks ago. Oh, thanks, Eric. You know, these are beautiful photos. What a beautiful baby. There he is. You know, I woke up yesterday sad, like inexplicably sad. And I was trying to figure out why I was sad. So I did that thing, you know, the thing you do where you you pull the sad file out of your head and you start flipping through all your sad memories to see, is this the one that's making me sad? You see if it fits. You try that sad memory on and see if it fits this particular sadness. And nothing in my sad file was fitting. I couldn't figure it out. I just gave up and got up and got on with my day. And it dawned on me um, a couple hours in that it's the 32nd anniversary of my father passing away. So... um. I think that our our hearts hold muscle memory just like our muscles do, like um, like emotional memory, like it's in there. And so this is just such a lovely note about your son, Eric. Thank you for writing it. And um, here's to all the dads out there. Uh, we'll be back in your ears tomorrow. Go check out the new episode of Jack, please, please, pretty please. Subscribe if you haven't. Subscribe to Clean Up on All 45 for free if you haven't. It's all free to subscribe. Helps us out. Helps knock the fascists off the charts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Search for The Daily Beans on YouTube. Subscribe there. It's free to subscribe there. And if there's anybody who has been asking for transcripts of these episodes, um, you can now get closed captioning of these episodes on, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Uh, along with Jack and, and clean up. It's all over there. So um, thanks, everybody. Dana will be back tomorrow. I'm going to go ahead to this amazing baby shower. Uh, until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. Oh, take care of your family and bring everyone with you. Speaking of your family, that was a weird sign off, but we'll take it. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for the Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. 
For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.